Well, I want to talk to you this morning because I suspect that you don't believe that your sin has had a pervasively poisoning effect on your life. Because we tend to think about sin like bubble wrap. Okay, I don't know if any of you, anybody else loves bubble wrap, but I love bubble wrap. Okay, I, in fact, I went looking for some this morning and it turns out that I've taken all the bubble wrap I've ever owned and I've already popped the little bubbles. But you see, that's kind of what we envision sin to be like. If our lives are a sheet of bubble wrap and it's all, we, we at least it appears to be all full of air and, and just like it's supposed to be. And then occasionally we will pop one, right? And it's not uh, really a problem. You could still reuse the bubble wrap because it still will do what bubble wrap is supposed to do. And so we're, we're thinking that, well, I haven't popped that many, you know, little... Bubbles. Except that the thing that happens when you grab the bubble wrap, roll it up, and go like this is that then it really pops and then it isn't as good. And the Bible teaches us that that's a little more like our lives really are. Or you can think of it this way. I mean, some of you know that I, I love uh, things to be spicy and I love hot sauce and that sort of thing. Well, um, I have ruined a few um, tacos and bowls of chili with hot sauce. Somebody gave me some hot sauce that uh, I didn't know anything about, really. The first time I opened it, um, I dumped a few drops on my burrito and I I couldn't eat it. I mean, I just would begin to sweat and my eyes began to water and my mouth burned. I ran to the kitchen or to the sink and, and uh, get something to drink. And, I, and I, I learned about that hot sauce. I thought I learned. Well, it turns out that after I'd used it a couple times, a little bit of the hot sauce got around the little cap, right? So then I went to the hot sauce thing and when you do that, it, your face always itches, right? And so I'm here like this, and yeah, it was not good. I've I've come to to use that hot sauce with a toothpick, and so a, what submersing the toothpick in the hot sauce and then stirring it in my chili is the right amount. I mean, it's bad, but that's the thing about. That's the thing about the hot sauce, is it sort of takes over. And really, sin is that way in our lives. Okay, I mean, certainly if you get a big dose of it, it can destroy you. And we're aware that that happens. But we don't really realize that any amount stirred in changes the whole thing. We assume, I mean, I've made a few assumptions. I've assumed that, that the chili was good to begin with, right? But uh, 
that's not necessarily the assumption you should make about sin, but nonetheless, a little bit of sin does flavor our entire life. We don't really recognize that. And so, we don't think it's that big a deal. I was trying to think, why, why do we feel that way about sin? Why do we think it's not such a big deal? Why do we treat it more like bubble wrap than damaging hot sauce? I think that we, we tend to treat it like bubble wrap because uh, we live in a morally confusing world where it is hateful for me to, to notice and point out that somebody else is sinning. That there might be some obvious sin somebody else has, and I point that out and I'm hateful. And so, I don't want to be hateful, so I don't point it out. Well, you know what? I don't want them to be hateful to me either, so my flaws nobody talks about. And we just sort of get along hoping that sin's not a very big deal. Part of our moral confusion, I think, has to do with the way that we entertain ourselves. We live in... We live in a rom-com world, right? Where, where we expect our lives, like the other people around us, all to turn out like some romantic comedy. Where it doesn't really matter if you're sleeping around, or it doesn't really matter if you've had even some infect, you know, self-inflicted tragedy. Because all of it will work out in the end. And we're used to stories resolving themselves in about 30 minutes and they're usually fine. And so we don't really think that our sin is going to have that serious a consequence. I think we don't think about the seriousness of sin because we absorb so much of the self-help Philosophy. It's everywhere. And you get all kinds of advice. And if you take that advice, you know, you can make your life better. In fact, I mean, frankly, I probably uh, seek out too much of that advice, especially like on time management. I'm like, waste time getting time management self help. But the reality is, preachers dispense it. And we don't really believe we're pervasively poisoned by sin. We simply think we haven't reached our positive potential. And we miss the devastation that sin brings. Now, some of us have experienced it. We've gotten that large dose of too much, right? And you're aware of it. And I've got great news for you. Because if you're aware of your sin and if you turn from it, Jesus can completely cleanse you from it. But we treat it as though it doesn't affect it our, our whole lives. And that if we sin, say, if we sin sexually, that that somehow doesn't affect our, um, you know, our, our worship on Sunday. Or if somehow we tell a, a, an untruth that somehow that doesn't affect our integrity at uh, our work. And we begin to, to try and compartmentalize like bubble wrap 
all of these sins and we don't recognize the effect that it has on who we are and on what our lives are like. Now, I want to talk to you about this for a couple of reasons. One is that we have reached Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 in our study of the book of Romans. And I invite you to turn there if you haven't already. Because there it tells us this very thing. That this is our problem. But part of the reason I want to talk to you about sin today is because Friday is Good Friday. And there happens to be a solution for sin close at hand. The cross of Jesus. Pretending sin's not a problem is not a solution. The cross of Jesus is a solution. Hoping that sin won't catch up to you is not a solution. The cross and resurrection of Jesus is a solution. So there's a solution close at hand, and so I don't feel bad talking to you about your sin because I know it can be dealt with. And so let's look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And you'll see, again, this is, this is kind of the, the end, the crescendo of his treatment of sin. We, we change topics right after Easter. But this is, he, he wants us to really believe that sin is a problem. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so as we look at Romans chapter 3, verse 9, I want you to see that the the writer of this letter is convinced and wants you to be convinced that you cannot escape your sin apart from the cross of Jesus. We have in in verse 9 just a, a little reminder of the problem. He says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, In his mind, there were two categories. You were either Jewish or you were non-Jewish. Whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish, Greek, you're all under sin. 
And that phrase, Jews and Greeks, brings us back to the theme of this book. Because the theme of this book begins in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jews first, and also for the Greeks. No matter what category you're in, I have good news for you, he says. You believe in Jesus to take away your sin, you can be reconciled to God regardless of your ethnic identity, regardless of the depth of your sin. See, that's what he does next. And he talks about the depth of their sin. He talks about how God turns them over to their lust, about how God, some of them suppress the truth and unrighteousness, how they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Then he talks about how some, some make their sin worse by adding religion to it so that they appear to be religious, yet they continue in their sin. And whether you are Jew or Greek, religious or irreligious, you all have a problem with sin. That's, that's where he's going with this. And, he's, and he states it another way. He says, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So this is the, this is the theme. This is the problem. You were all under sin. What does he mean by under sin? He really describes it in two ways later in the book. In, in, in chapter 4, he talks about you being in one of two categories. Okay, not Jew and Greek now. He changes the categories. So you are either in Adam. So Adam is your um, head or your ruler, you might say, because you're a natural person and your, your natural descent is back to Adam. And Adam brought sin in the world. And so being a descendant of Adam means that you are under the... Um, the program he started. You are under sin. Okay. In chapter 4, he says you can either be under Adam or you can be under Christ. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 4. But you are under sin. You, you are born with sin because Adam started it. And you are following that's one way he talks about under sin later in the book. He talks about under sin in chapter 6 like sin is a slave dealer. And because sin is a, you know, a slave master, you are sin's slave and you are under sin. You are obligated to do what sin makes you do. You are obligated to suffer the penalty that sin makes you suffer. Pretending it's not the problem doesn't help. You're under sin. And so, he makes the case over and over throughout this book in various ways that we all have this sin problem and we don't have a good way out apart from Christ. And so this is this is his idea. All are under sin. And then he develops this like a good preacher, okay, by using the Bible. And everything else that follows as it is written, 
Okay, as it is written, everything else until we get to, to verse 19, he's just stringing together Bible quotes here to convince the religious person from their Old Testament that in fact, they are under sin. And notice that this is what it means to be under sin. The first thing it means is that there is none righteous, no, not one. The first thing that sin does is it gives us a problem with God. That's what it means to be under sin. You have a problem with God. No one is right with God. That's what righteous means, right. No one is right with God because of their sin. That's the problem of sin. And so the, the quest that so many people are on, really all of us are on, is how do we get right with God again? And we're going to take that up really the rest of the book. But there's none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Okay? Here's a, another problem. It, it affects your mind and the way that you understand reality. So that you're so easily duped into believing life is a romantic comedy. Where it all works out in the end. Where it's not really that bad. Where God is a grandfatherly type gentleman up in the sky who winks at your sin and says, boys will be boys. Or girls will be girls. No one understands. When you, when you, when you have anything less than an absolute fear and regret and repentance of sin, you don't understand reality. Part of the problem is no one seeks after God. Part of your God problem is you're not seeking Him like you should. See, we all, we all have in our minds good people that we know. I mean, I just, did a, uh, I just did a funeral yesterday for a good man that I coached with years ago. And we all have in mind good people. And we don't really think because we can't see it. We don't know whether they're seeking God or not. Whether someone is actually pursuing a relationship with the Creator of the universe who will hold them morally accountable or not. And, and what this tells us is people don't do that like they should. Because sin has so permeated their life that they can't seek God like they should. They're seeking other things. They're seeking... Uh, they're, they're seeking financial comfort or financial security or or physical comfort or relational intimacy in place of seeking God and we're all substituting for God other things that we seek no one's doing that it says it says everybody's turned aside every one of us has some sort of moral squirrel that just grabs our attention and we get off of where we need to go He says, together they have become worthless. Look at, look at these things he's stringing together. It's not, it's not saying, again, that everyone is as bad as they can be. He's saying everyone is as bad off as they can be because of their sin. It has affected everything. 
And so, even the things that I hold up as worthy or really wonderful about myself are tainted with pride or tainted with um, some other sin. Everything is flavored with that. So that no one does good, not even one. This is part of our God problem. I look at people and I think, yeah, that's pretty good. God looks at people and says, that's pretty good, it's just not good enough. See, the, the, the threshold for good enough is way up here and everybody's good is way down here. And the gap is, is too great. There is none that does good. I mean, one of the illustrations that I've heard years ago is that somebody can be a good swimmer. How good a swimmer are you? I'm, I'm a good swimmer. Well, can you swim from California to Hawaii? Well, you're, you might be pretty good, but that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big distance to cover. Good is relative for most of us. It's not relative for God. We are going to talk about next week and then as we get back into Romans, we're going to talk about the one person who was good. That one person who was good. That one person who was right. That one person who did seek God like He should. That one person who did understand and who did not turn aside. That one person, we've already sung it this morning, voluntarily went to a cross for all of those of us who aren't good who don't seek God, who don't understand, and who miss it. And so the first thing you need to know is that this sin problem that pervades all of our lives gives us a God problem. We cannot, apart from something outside of ourselves, be reconciled to God. There is none who does good, not even one. Then, he begins to talk about how sin affects our relationships with other people. How sin pervades our actions and our words. Notice, notice here what he's after. Their throats an open grave. Their tongues deceive. Venom of asses under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Sin affects your speech. I'd love to talk to you afterwards if you're a person who has never said something that you regret. Because all of us have, right? That's part of the sin problem. Is that it just comes out. Jesus says, from the abundance of the mouth, the heart, or from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Sin affects the heart, and out it comes. It, it gets all stirred around in our lives and it just seeps out. <laughs> I, I don't know how this works, but I had some other hot sauce that was pretty good, I thought, and until I went to kiss Marcia later. <laughs> and it just came out. She just said, did you have some hot sauce today? 
You know what? You can't hide it, right? We want to hide our sin. We want to, but it gets out. Part of the problem. Uh Uh-oh. Look what else sin does to us. It says, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. It affects what you do. It affects the direction of your life. It affects your actions. I don't want it to. I intend better. I think of myself in positive ways. Yet, whether I like it or not, sin gets a hold of me and it makes me do things I don't want to do. And it changes the course of my life. In other words, it pervades everything, right? That's his point. Sin gives us a God problem. Sin affects our speech and sin affects our actions. You don't have much else. You don't have much that isn't in the sight of God that isn't your words and isn't your actions. And just in case you did, he gives a summary. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The very thing that is required of you, that you stand in awe of a holy and righteous and perfect God, you don't do that like you should. You might be really, really good, but you don't do it like you should. And so a summary is that your relationship, you do not relate to God in the right way because of your sin. And so his case here, and this is really the conclusion of his case that he's been building ever since chapter 1, where he talks about it, suppressing the truth and exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. All of that comes down to sin affecting our relationship with God, um, our mouths, our actions, and all of us being under sin. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who, who was a, uh, an author, but before that was a prisoner, um, wrote in the, his book, Gulag Archipelago, if there were only evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, he says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You see, he saw it in the prisons and he saw it in the people in power and he saw it in his culture and he was a a, a critic of the way that people treat one another and he said, good and evil cuts through every human heart and that is our issue. We all have a sin problem. So what are we going to do about this sin problem? 
want to suggest to you the thing that most people do doesn't work. Okay, that's, that's what he takes up next. The thing that people do doesn't work. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And so now we have the law of God talking about how you should speak, about how you should treat other people, about how you should relate to God and offer sacrifices because sin has so tainted your life. We have this law of God expressing to us God's standard so that all of us are under this law. Okay? And whatever the law says, it says to those who are under it, who, who have it, who, who have it on their laps, who can read it, who can understand that God is not like us. And what are you to do with the law? The whole maybe first half of your Bible. What are you going to make of that? He says what you're supposed to make of the first half of your Bible is this. You have the law so that every mouth might be stopped. So that your excuses are done. I don't know if you ever... um, Well, let's just say, I'd like to say that I never made an excuse to my parents. Okay? Uh, I had four sisters and uh, routinely offended them. And when confronted by my parents, routinely made some excuse. And they caught on to that very quickly and said, no, no excuses. Occasionally they said, shut up. Okay. You don't get to keep talking here. That's what he's saying. The law expresses God's, God's righteousness, ex- expresses His standards, so that you don't get to keep talking. You don't get to keep saying, but what if? But what about this? But what about an exception? Isn't there something that's going to let us out of here? No. Stop talking. Okay. The whole world is accountable to God. That's his point. See, it isn't just... You can think of it in any order you want. It isn't just that those folks out there are accountable to God. Oh yeah, they can, they can be crazy with their, uh, with their vote. They can be crazy with their actions. They can do all kinds of... You know what? And uh, Who am I to judge them? God will judge them. They're accountable to God. But you know what? Yes, the Greek people outside are accountable to God, but so are the people inside. So are the Jews. So are the people who are religious. The whole world is accountable. Every one of us will give an account. In fact, Jesus said, for every careless word. The whole world's accountable for God before God. That's the relationship that you have with His law. Now here's what everyone tries. For by the works of the law, 
This is what, every, this is what everyone tries. I'm just going to go out and do better. I'm going to go out and, and I'm going to be a, a good person. And if I'm a good enough person, God will let my bad parts go. If my bubble wrap has enough air in it, maybe the parts that are punctured won't be a problem. That's the story we tell ourselves. And what this says is, this is a made-up story. Nobody is justified by doing the works of the law. There is nothing that you can do to, to justify or make yourself right with God. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to even preach this because there's nothing to say about it. What am I going to say that's more clear than no human being will be justified by the works of the law? And yet, person after person thinks they're pretty good. Person after person hopes that God's going to just let them in to heaven and forgive them because they do some good stuff. It is an inadequate solution. No human being is justified in God's sight by the works of the law. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's the law that lets us know we're sinners. It's God's expression, it's God's revelation that you have on your laps that lets us know that we have this problem And no amount of pretending we don't have the problem will fix it. I can't say that enough. I can't say that enough because I know so many people that I love that are decent folks who are telling themselves they don't have a problem. who are writing for themselves a narrative about their life that says they're good enough for God. Some of them are in the church. And God is clear. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. I just want to plead with you before, before I even tell you about Jesus. I want to plead with you. Recognize you have a sin problem. Don't pretend it away. I want to beg you. Stop trying to fix it by being a good person. It's not fixable. You can't undo what you've already done. You might be better tomorrow than you were last week. But being better tomorrow doesn't undo last week. 
even if you tell yourself it does. And I just want to if you engage people, maybe you're, maybe you're clear on this. I hope you're clear on this. We've spent a lot of weeks in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 to get clear. But as you engage your friends and the people you love and they tell themselves this story over and over, and I run into it so much, beg them, plead with them, love them enough to help him see that God really does care about sin and He has a standard. And no amount of trying reaches it. I, I can't stop with that though, can I? Like, oh, happy day at church today. You know what? It is a happy day at church today. Because a church is not made up of folks who think they're pretty good. Church is made up of folks who know that Jesus is good. And know that they need Him. That's the good news. The good news is that I can admit I'm not all I'm cracked up to be. And I must admit that Jesus is all I should be. And it is His righteousness. Now, you'll notice if you keep reading, okay, I'm, I'm trying to leave it alone because I'm, we're going to revisit it in a couple of weeks. If you keep reading, verse 20, those of you who have your Bible open, you'll notice what verse 21 says. Now the righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. The good news is that for everyone crushed by sin who is a slave to sin, there is a liberator named Jesus who came and through His death broke the power of death. Broke the chains of sin so that you might be free from it. So that you might have life and be fully alive. Not just pretend to be alive because you're hoping you're going to be good enough. Jesus does for you what you can't do for yourself. I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Because it is good news. Salvation. For everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God, apart from the works of the law, righteousness of God is revealed. And it begins with faith. It continues in faith. Doesn't continue in pretending. Doesn't continue in trying harder. It continues in Faith And so my invitation to you this morning is, first of all, believe you're a great sinner. And second of all, believe that Jesus is a great Savior. Because that is our good news. Okay? We don't wallow in self-pity because we're sinners. We worship 
because we're sinners. And Jesus has saved us. Let's pray. Oh, our great God and Father, we are we are in such need of a Savior. And You have more than given us what we need in the person of Jesus. Again, I want to pray for those crushed by sin. God, would You free them today by faith in the cross of Jesus. 